You ever let yourself be like really honest or maybe even just with a group of friends about the biggest questions that you have of life, of existence, of faith? My wife and I are at the stage now where our, our kids are going to the, getting to the ages where they're starting to ask the hard, hard questions. And last night, it was actually my youngest, my 11-year-old, that confronted my wife, Nikki, with some of the hardest questions. Questions like this. Mom, today in class, my teacher was kind of making fun of people that would believe in something so ridiculous as a Big Bang Theory, but I know that somewhere in the world, there's probably a classroom being taught to make fun of people like me who believe in Jesus and his resurrection. So how do I know that this is true? That's pretty good for an 11-year-old right before bed. Or do you ever have it where you read like one part of scripture and then you read another part of scripture and you're like, I don't know what to do with these two seemingly contradictory texts. And you're just sort of confused by it and you're humbled by it and we have sort of have different options. We can either kind of ignore them in that moment, but I'm learning more and more that some of the greatest discovery we have in our faith is when we allow ourselves to be shaped by the tension of the text. Look at the church of Christ that is getting carved out in the interaction between Peter and Paul that we've seen already in the book of Galatians. That it's in that tension, it's in the forging of that early community and what they had to wrestle through together about what it was that Jesus really changed in everything in their world. That we get the foundation for what becomes the church, a legacy that we are all here celebrating and standing in today. But let's not dance around the questions, even the really hard ones. Sometimes I think we're afraid that if I just had to say, I don't know at the end, it would chase us away from our faith. I recently had some faith leaders in church ask me like, Aaron, aren't you afraid of like the slippery slope if you let people ask questions? And all the data seems to suggest that your generation in particular isn't so much pushed away from faith ever by the slippery slope of being allowed to ask too many hard questions, but rather falling off the precipice of certainty. You just have to have it all together. You have to have all the answers. It has to be so black and white. So can we learn to live in the tension? And can we do things and, and come across texts in the Bible that wrestle with one another? One of the greatest examples of this, I've shared this a few years ago, I think, um, in chapel, but I came back to it again this week. And this is from in one of my favorite books, Jesus for President, um, by Shane Claiborne. And he's quoting Gary Wills in this, but this is how it goes, so pay attention. He's imagining that somebody's writing a letter to their pastor and theological teacher. Thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law, and I've learned so much from you. And I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. And when someone tries to defend, for example, a homosexual lifestyle, I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it is to be an abomination. End of debate. However, I do need some advice from you regarding some other elements of God's law and how I'm supposed to follow and apply them. First, Leviticus 25.44 states that I may possess slaves, both male and female, provided they are purchased from a different country, now, a friend of mine claims that this applies to Mexicans, but not Canadians. Can you clarify, why can I not own a Canadian? 
I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21, verse 7. But in today's day and age, just accounting for inflation, what do you think would be a good price for her? Now, I know that I'm not allowed to have contact with a woman while she is in her period of menstrual uncleanliness, as per Leviticus 15, verse 19 to 24. The problem is, how do I tell? Every time I ask, they seem to get so upset. I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath, and Exodus 35, verse 2 clearly states that he should be put to death, and I'm just wondering, am I morally obligated to kill him, or should the police do it? I got another friend of mine who feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, according to Leviticus 11.10, it's a lesser abomination than homosexuality, but I don't agree. Can you settle this? Are there degrees of abomination? Leviticus 21 verse 20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a defect in my sight, but I have to admit that I wear glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there a little bit of wiggle room on this one? I know Leviticus 11 verse 6 and 8 says that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean, but can I play football if I wear gloves? And on and on and on the list goes, right? Like you have these texts where you've had to wrestle through and wonder, what do I do with this? And how does this fit in to the greater story of Scripture? And how do I wrestle through all of these things? This is the study of hermeneutics. In Scripture, it was my favorite part of seminary where we would sit down and work through how the Bible interprets the Bible. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. My professor in that class, Rick Watts, always said this, the Bible doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. The Bible doesn't mean what it says, it means what it means. And this is the allowance that gives us the permission for seemingly contradictory texts within the Bible itself, all bound together, can still be held together. You've probably had these experiences before where some, you know, you're listening to some sort of um, I don't know, televangelist or TikTok preacher and there's like a passage here and a passage here and a passage here and you can kind of cherry pick scripture to make it say what you want it to say. My hermeneutics prof always called this an old McDonald's sermon. Here a text, there a text, everywhere a text text. <laughs> and you can kind of do that with the Bible if you really wanted to, but the responsible reader takes it from start to finish and tries to figure out the trajectories within the text of what's changing over time. What is God maturing through his people? How is he changing and setting it up? What's put in place that's temporary and what's put in place that's permanent? And how do we understand all of this? And to be honest, it is somewhat complicated, and that's okay. Because I think that the genius of an omniscient, incredible, almighty God is probably worth our study and a little bit of pondering. And maybe, just maybe, his thoughts are above my thoughts and his ways are above my ways and that my faith is built not on my own certainty but in my mystery about who he is. And my faith is founded more in awe and wonder than it is in answers. Because it's founded in love in a relationship. I have relationships that include feelings in my life that I can't explain. I will never have the vocabulary for. Love does that. And so it's okay if we live inside some of this tension. So just getting you up to speed as we jump into the Galatians text again today, right before this, of course, we were at the point where 
you know, Paul's angry at them because they're, they're wrestling through and they're, they're, he's having a difference from Peter of what's still binding from the Old Testament, what's still, what isn't, what's still from the lost days and what's got to go. What did Jesus change? How do we become this New Testament community of God in light of the Old Testament and how God has worked in the past? And this is the, where they find themselves now. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. And just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. And why then, might you ask, was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture, scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. So that what was being promised, that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So in order to make sense of something like this, you can see what Paul's doing. He's going all the way back into the story. He's grounding it so much further back in the original biblical intent of what God had designed in his relationship with his people. So he's saying, if you want to understand this well, don't pick it apart. Don't pick one thing that fits you best. Don't go and create a gospel in your own image. But let's go back into the bigger story that has carried us all the way through. Because in the grand meta-narrative of Scripture... The protagonist is not me, it is Yahweh. God is the main character. God is driving the action in the story. Now in our literature and English classes growing up, we learn stories sort of follow a general pattern. You probably had to memorize in fifth grade some sort of chart that looked like this. The rising action in a story and the climax in a denouement. And yet any one of you who has lived life following Christ probably has a spiritual growth and maturation chart that looks more like this. Because it's just not that simple and it's not that clear and it goes up and it's one step forward and two steps back and three steps forward and one step back. And throughout all of this, God is there in the chaos Always moving the story. Always there. Now, too often when we're trying to reconcile the laws of the Old Testament with the boundless grace of the New Testament, we try to fix the problem by talking about a passing of a baton. Right? We want to imagine that the law somehow gets passed off in race, which then becomes grace. And we're thinking in this linear sort of sense, Right? The problem with this is it's not actually how Scripture is written, and that's what Paul wants to correct for us in this passage. If you've always thought or been taught that the way to understand the Bible or the Old Testament's relationship to the New is that the law gets passed now and becomes grace, and there's like this transformation that takes place. 
But what Paul reminds us in this text is that all the way back, the promises of God, it's the grace of God that actually preceded the law. It comes before. The law was only introduced 430 years later. In other words, after slavery in Egypt at the foot of Mount Sinai. The law did not get passed and become grace. Grace precedes the law. Now think about this for a minute like a river and its banks. This is the metaphor that makes the most sense in my own mind. Already in the Old Testament, the promises of God, the actions of God are the river. It's the fuel that's moving God's people through the story. That's already within creation when God moves first, when God loves first, when God creates. God is the doer of the doing. He is the subject of the verbs that drive the story of the Old Testament narrative. And then after 430 years of slavery, the law gets offered as the banks of the river. Not as a replacement for it. The law gets offered as the banks of the river. You see, it was temporal. It was only put in place until the seed. So its purpose from the very beginning was not to be something that was to last into eternity. Its purpose was to fit in a specific period of time, leading and guiding God's people, the banks in which the river of the promises and the grace of God would flow. N.T. Wright describes it as having a, a temporal implication and then also anthropological, anthropological limitations. In other words, there was nothing wrong with the law, but the problem with the law is that it had to be followed by people who were broken. And so at the end of the day, what was needed was more. But more becomes freedom, not more rules. Think about your own maturity, your own growth process. When you were, when you were a toddler, your parents had a scripted bedtime for you. You had nap time, you had meal time. Like, it's, everything's very regimented, and there were lots of rules, and you couldn't go very far beyond your yard, and you had all these rules. And the older you get, the more mature that you became, the more the heart of your parents began to get instilled within you, and you wanted to please them. You didn't want to cr create brokenness and severance between you and them. The relationship drive that unity, and as it grew and as trust grows, more and more and more freedoms go because they didn't want just your behavior. They wanted you to launch into the world. And when Jesus comes, the banks and the river get obliterated by the cross and the river and the banks become a flood to cover the entire world, and to cover all of us. In terms of understanding this in a time sense, N.T. Wright's favorite analogy for describing the relationship of the law and God's people is a space shuttle. And how the rocket boosters are perfectly good, but they're only good for so long. At some point in time, they fall off, and then the rocket keeps going. And I love that sense, because I think so often I, I have this tendency to want to demonize the law, or I'll say things like legalistic, like it's a negative, pejorative thing. But the law of God is beautiful and leads to life, and it was designed out of God's incredible and beautiful imagination. But just like Paul says in this passage, it all hinges on that word, until. Until the seed would come. The cross fulfills it all. 
And the law becomes the living one and the promise becomes the person and the cross obliterates all of this and the resurrection now makes it possible that the banks are gone and the river is supposed to run wild like a flood all over the earth and all through God's people. And anybody who's been raised in any form of home or society with rules has the question probably welling up inside of them. This is the one my wife asked me yesterday when we were driving and I was talking about what I was preaching on and I, it was like, it was right on cue. So now we can just do whatever we want? Now everybody can do whatever they want, right? No more laws? Is that what you're saying, Aaron? Is that what Jesus is saying? You ever wondered that in the relationship? Okay, but if we get rid of the rules, then what? Well, so now we can do whatever we want? No. Now you get to do whatever the Spirit wants. Because the removal of the law comes with the person of Christ now coming and dwelling in you. And think about it. A law can only tell you what you can't do. A law by its very nature is a prohibition. The speed limit caps how far I can drive on a highway. But it doesn't actually make me a better person. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do inside of me through his gifts and through his fruit can do so much more for the rest of the world than a law could ever do. And that's why the law was good. And that's why rules when you're a toddler are good. And as you grow up, and now it's not just about what you shouldn't do, there's a little more about what you should do. And that's what the Spirit's all about, that pushing should inside of you, prompting you on to aspects and elements of shalom and beauty and reconciliation. But maybe you're asking already the follow-up question, well, then what does the Spirit want? Remember last week we talked about what Jesus was so excited about in the coming and the arrival of the Spirit? And here too, this, this passage from that farewell discourse in John reminds us of our ability to trust the Spirit he will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He'll guide you into all truth. He will never contradict the Father and the Son. All three persons of the Trinity are in perfect alignment with one another. His only role is to heighten and enliven your relationship with them and with everybody else. To become within you the power and the fuel and the flood to bless others and to praise the Lord in a way that you could have never done through your own strength. So the law could only tell you what not to do, but the Spirit will tell you what, to, should, what you should do. There is a giant should inside from the Holy Spirit from each one of us. And we need more of this from God's people. We need you to live out all those promptings that you get from the Spirit to act in simple, tiny little pieces of kindness, the way God described the kingdom of God breaking in like a mustard seed. All those little movements, all those little prompts of the Holy Spirit, he's working in a giant mosaic through all of God's people to make the world a more beautiful place, to make our relationships more true, to make you more human, to lead us to places of peace, to make us beautiful to everyone again, and to lead us in a perfect relationship with the Father through the Son, because of the spirit within us. Emil Brunner once said it like this. 
At every period in the history of the church, the greatest sin of the church, and the one which causes the greatest distress, is that she withholds the gospel from the world and from herself. The next time you get a Holy Spirit should in you, for the literal love of God, please do not hold that back. Let it go. This flood needs to move. And God wants to move you as a part of it. Do not withhold that from the rest of the world and from us together as the church. You are the people that the world is waiting for. And the shoulds inside you that the Holy Spirit is prompting are what I need and you need for us to give each other. And we ask the band to come on up and lead us in one last closing song. And as they come on up um, and the choir, um, I just want to pray with you about these things. Will you join me? Father, we admit that sometimes we're just, we're intimidated by hard texts. We come across passages that are difficult to understand. But Lord, we just cling to this promise that your spirit will lead us to all truth. And that you will be completely consistent through the work of your spirit with everything that the Father has revealed, with everything that the Son has done. And you are true. Even when we can't understand or we can't see the resolution. Father, help us to trust in you in all of that. Help us to lean more fully into the Spirit in this season as we learn what it means to fall in step with you and as we start listening to the voice of your Spirit inside of us, like learning a new language, Lord, will you cause us to become more fluent in the whispers of the Holy Spirit? And we all tell you now that we want to hear your voice. Speak. Not just when there's someone on the front of the church or up on a stage in chapel. But in our minds and in our soul. Affirm for us what no argument could do. The work and conviction of your Holy Spirit. That will empower us become what the world stands in need of. In Jesus' name, amen.